0: We're up to mitzvah number 97, and we are continuing the theme of the temple and the tabernacle. Of course, we're following the Mitzvos in the order in which they appear in the Torah. And therefore, we're now in you know, Parsha Truma, chapter 25 of the book of Exodus. This is, of course, after the Sinai revelation. And now Moshe is instructed to go do the big fundraising efforts for all the Materials for the Mishkan, for the Tabernacle, and all the vessels and all the vestments. And we're up to mitzvah number ninety-seven, and that is the mitzvah to have showbreads lechem ha'panim, showbreads upon the table in the sanctuary. Of course, there were three vessels. There was the menorah, there was the golden altar, the inner altar as it's called, and then there was the table. And then that's the sanctuary. And then the Holy of Holies, which is kind of the next level, the inner sanctums of the temple and tabernacle, there was the ark, which we spoke about last week. But there's a mitzvah, mitzvah number 97, to place bread, showbreads as they're called, and frankincense on the table at all times. The verse says in chapter 25, verse 30 of the book of Exodus, you should place bread before God at all times, Upon the table, and that is mitzvah number 97. Now, these breads were very unique breads, very uniquely shaped. Think of it as like a sawed-off U. Rashi describes it as like a boat. So it has walls on, on either side, but really the walls fold, fold over. So it's almost like suspended midair. And these were massive, massive breads. Each one is about three feet long, massive breads, and uh, a foot and a half wide. And a half a foot tall. These are massive. And there were 12 of them at all times on top of the table, the golden table, in the sanctuary where the Kohanim and only the Kohanim are able to walk. Incidentally, we think of bread as being chametz. You know, in Pesach we eat matzah. We don't eat bread. The bread in the temple was actually kosher for Passover. It was not chametz. It's very rare to have chametz in the temple on Shavuos, for example, we have the Shtei the special offering that's brought on Shavuos, which is chametz. But the rest of the year, there's almost no chametz in the temple. And these massive breads, 12 of them that were stacked atop the table were actually kosher for Passover. Now they were stacked on two different stats, so two stats of six breads apiece. And there are two spoons of frankincense on the table between the stacks. We have a book here at the Torch Center called the Mishkan that has uh, you know beautiful pictures to describe exactly how it's laid out and how it's placed upon the table and the various different opinions exactly where on the table the frankincense in their spoons were placed. So I would encourage if anyone could look at pictures, it's very hard to kind of convey this with just words. There are these beautiful pictures that show exactly what it looked like. Now, one of the great miracles that was present with these showbreads is that despite the fact that they were turned over every eight days, really, it's really seven days, but they were baked on every Friday, and then they were installed on the table the following day every Shabbos, and they were placed upon the table for an entire week, and they were replaced the following Shabbos, thus the breads were eight days old when they were removed from the table. So you would bake it on Friday, install it on Shabbos. As you install the new batch, you remove the old batch, and they've been there for eight days. Typically, you have bread. It's nice and hot and steamy and fresh. And then the next day later, I don't know, it's not as good. And, you know, eight days later, it's moldy and it's all terrible. There was a miracle in the temple and the tabernacle that when it was removed eight days later, it was just as hot and as fresh and as succulently delicious as it would have been if it was consumed right out of the oven. After eight days, the breads, the 12 breads that were removed are distributed to the Kohanim, to the Kohen Gadol, to the Kohanim, both the incoming cohort and the outgoing cohort, and they were as fresh as when they were initially installed. In fact, the Talmud tells us that on the three festivals, three times a year, the entire Jewish nation congregates to Jerusalem. And there is an emphasis on trying to connect all of the nation to the temple and to all the miracles that are happening there. If you think about it, the temple is a very central component of Jewish life. But if you're living in the north of Israel or you're in, in what's now today Lebanon and Syria, which is part of biblical Israel, Your life is your life and you show up, you know, once, twice, three times a year to the temple and there's a great emphasis to try to bond the nation together and to the temple when the nation is there, when there's the pilgrimage. So for example, the Talmud tells us that on the festivals, they would open up all the curtains and allow everyone to look inside the Holy of Holies and they could see the two cherubs embracing each other. And that, of course, is symbolic of the nation and our relationship with the Almighty. And that would just give everyone this tremendous boost of inspiration. Everyone will be uplifted by that sight. Says the Talmud on the festivals. The nation was shown the table and they were shown the steaming hot and fresh bread, despite the fact that it was there for a couple of days already. Now, the Ramam asked the question, wait a minute. The table is in the sanctuary where the nation is not able to go. Only the Kohanim are able to tread there. So he says that they would actually lift the table and elevate it to a height where everyone could see it. And they would see the steam coming out of the bread, even though the bread has been there for a couple of days. Even though sometimes it was there already for eight days. It's been baked eight days ago. But everyone would be very impressed and excited to see this wonderful miracle. So this is Mitzvah number 97. To have these showbreads upon the table at all times, together with the showbreads, are those two spoons of frankincense. Now, with every mitzvah, we try to understand a little bit of the reason behind it. What is the reason? What what what, what can we understand about this particular mitzvah? And in general, the whole idea of the temple and the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the various services in the house of God We struggle with it. You know, obviously God needs nothing. That's the definition that we have of God. He doesn't need any of our stuff. He doesn't need our food. We don't give him food. We don't give him anything to drink. He doesn't need the oil or the incense or the frankincense or the bread or the blood. All the sacrifices and all the services that we do in the temple and the tabernacle, they are a little bit mysterious to us. It's very hard for us to understand it. And here we're we're placing bread. Now, The bread is not consumed by God. It's consumed by the Kohanim. But there's a mitzvah to have that bread there at all times. In fact, even when you put in the new loaves, you can't remove the old loaves and place the new loaves upon the racks. You have to kind of nudge the old loaves out by pushing them with the new loaves. Why? There's a mitzvah to have bread there at all times. But the bread is consumed by the Kohanim. But why has, why, why does there need to be bread before God? And we know, of course, we don't believe that we could give God anything. God is perfect, lacks nothing. If he lacks nothing, what are we doing? Why why are we giving him things? Or at least that's, you know, what we're pretending to do. So this is a big question that I was trying to figure out. And the Sefer Chinuch, the book that we are using to guide us through the mitzvot, he makes a big emphasis, a few paragraphs long, to say that, of course, there is no benefit at all in this to the divine. And he actually quotes the Rambam in The Guide to the Perplexed. Who says that he doesn't have an adequate rationale for the table and the breads? Aval hashulchan. This is the quote from the Rambam. But the table, Vihiyos alaikham and the fact that there's bread upon it, tamid at all times, loe This is the Rambam saying. I don't know a reason for it. It's hard for us to make a, a rational reason for this idea. Now, the Sefer Chinuch, he himself offers a nice idea. This is something that we've talked about in other contexts in the past. And he says that bread is really different. We talk about the the bread and butter. There's something very basic about bread. It almost symbolizes sustenance. Bread is the most basic food that gives humanity continuity. Bread is the sustenance of man. And we need bread more than anything else. We need bread, water, that's just the basis. Food, shelter, water, that's what we need. That's the top of the, or the bottom, I guess, of the hierarchy of the Maslow's hierarchy. And therefore, because bread is really different than everything else, there is a need to have blessing in bread at all times. And he explains If we do a mitzvah with something, there's a beautiful principle that he explains. Everything that you do a mitzvah with becomes a receptacle of divine blessing. Whatever you do a mitzvah with, that now coalesces within it divine blessing. And therefore, the Almighty wants us to have blessing in all of our bread. So he gives us a mitzvah that allows a foothold for divine blessing in bread. And once there is blessing in bread in this world, that can expand, so to speak, to all the breads in the entire world. And therefore, by us placing the showbreads before God in the temple, we're doing a mitzvah now. We're following the mighty's instruction in bread. And now we have blessing in bread. And once there's a foothold in blessing in this bread, that can expand, land and expand to all the other breads in the world. And he has this amazing line where he says, Whatever you use for a mitzvah is blessed. In anything that you do the will of Hashem, the will of God, in that you receive blessing. Whenever you direct your focus to a mitzvah, that becomes the receptacle of blessing. And I was always told, if you dedicate yourself to the children of others, to Hashem's children, that the mighty will say, okay, I'm going to make blessing now in your children as well. There's this idea, something that you dedicate yourself towards, you become now the recipient of blessing in that particular arena. And therefore, the mighty wants to give us blessing in our sustenance. There should be enough food, plentiful food for everyone. He gives us this mitzvah to do something in the temple and the tabernacle with bread. And now there is blessing found in bread worldwide. And he quotes the Talmud in the book of Rosh Hashanah on page 16a, which elaborates upon this idea. On the second day of Pesach, we bring the Omer offering. That was a grain offering. Says the Talmud, the Imadi, so to speak, says, you bring an offering with grain, I'm going to give you blessing in your grain. And then, there is the water libations on the festival of Sukkot. The Almighty, so to speak, says, bring, do a mitzvah, bring a sacrifice with water. And now the winter season where you need the water, I'm going to make sure that there's plenty of water. There's blessing found in the water. You need expiation. You need atonement. You need to have your merits invoked before God on the festival of repentance. Blow a shofar and I'll remember... The ram of Isaac. Similarly, you do a mitzvah with bread. Now there is blessing found in bread. Now the Sefer Hinnah points out there was another miracle that was present in the showbreads. And that is that after it was distributed to the Kohanim. So if you think about it, you know, it's, they're massive breads, but there's a lot of Kohanim. Even if you have 12 breads, First of all, the kohen gadol could take as as much as he wants. You know, he could have that 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 could be his his bread for the whole week. Puts on his peanut butter and jelly and makes his omelets with it. That's the kohen gadol. He has the you know the first dibs for everything. But the halacha tells us, or the Talmud tells us, that if you were a kohen, all you got was a small little bit. There was such blessing found in this bread. You could have a little little olives worth of bread and that would fill you up. Why? Because this was special bread. It was, it was replete with divine blessing. Now, in addition, as we mentioned, there is a requirement to have spoons of frankincense together with these breads. You have to have it all. You have to have those two stats, 12 loaves, plus the two spoonfuls of frankincense, and it would be there from Shabbos to Shabbos, and it was distributed to the incoming and outgoing cohorts of Kohanim, of course, with the Kohen Gadol was always there, and you would push the new breads onto the racks, there were racks stacked upon the table, you would push the old breads out with the new incoming breads in order to make sure that there's always bread upon the table to fulfill the mitzvah, that there's always bread upon the table. Now, as we like to do here, you know, this is the mitzvah, but we like to survey some of the stories and some of the other parts of the literature on this given mitzvah. There's a very interesting story found in the Talmud, the book of Yoma, on page 38a that relates to the showbreads. It tells us that there was one family, there was one family, they were expert bakers. And as we mentioned earlier, the showbread They were shaped in a very unique fashion. It was like a, like a U with a hanging, hanging little awning, little mezzanine hanging over on one side. You try to bake a bread like that. It's going to topple over. It's going to, it's going to crumble. It's really hard to make a bread shaped like a U, especially when it's, it's so large. So there's one family that they were expert bakers and they knew exactly how to shape it in a way that it wouldn't crumble. And they were hired as the official bakers of the temple, because they knew how to do it. But they refused to share their secrets with anyone else. They didn't want to share their know-how. And the Talmud tells us that they were, they were castigated. They were disgraced by the sages because they were very protective over their secret, their trade secrets, and they didn't want to share it with anyone. And... The Talmud tells us that the sages were not happy with this. This is not the Jewish way. You have a secret, especially with something that relates to the temple. You got your secret sauce, but spread it to other people because other people also want to do this mitzvah. But they said, no, we're not telling anyone how to do it. So what did the sages do? They fired them. This is like, you know, Reagan dealing with dealing with the air traffic controllers. "Ah, You don't like it? You don't like the terms? Okay, you're out but now they needed to hire new bakers. So they went to Alexandria in Egypt. All the best artisans and craftsmen of the world were centralized there. And they went to interview some of the expert bakers in Alexandria. And they knew how to bake it, the Talmud tells us, but they couldn't remove it. I mean, they'll place it upon the upon the oven and they could get it right on the oven. But once they tried to remove from the oven, it would, it would crumble. Tomlin explains that there was a fire inside the oven, fire outside the oven, all these different techniques that they tried didn't quite work. Moreover, the bread of the Alexandrians, it didn't quite have the right consistency and it became moldy over time. So now you have no choice. You know, you tried to fire the family that has all the secrets you tried to hire a replacement, and you failed. So what do you do? You go back to the original family, and they went back to the original family and they said, "Okay, you win. You're welcome back. You're reinstated. You're hired." And they said, "No, we're not coming back." <laughs> They're like, "No, we're not coming back." So they said, "You know what? We'll double. We'll double your salary. We'll double the amount of money we pay for it." Okay, you have my intention now, and they, in fact. Capitulated and they resumed, they resumed their duties as the bakers of the temple. Now, the Talmud tells us the, the uh, postscript of the story. The sages asked them, well, why are you so protective over your trade secrets? And they responded because we have a tradition that the temple is not going to endure forever. It's going to be destroyed. And what's going to be when it is destroyed? And now our secret is out. Someone is going to use this secret and use it for an idol. Someone's going to take the secrets that we have for God and use it for a pagan deity. And therefore, we're not spreading it to anyone. And the Talmud ends with a nice compliment to this family even though they were the experts, they knew exactly how to do it. And there was maybe a concern that maybe they were baiting some extra, some extra special bread on the side for their family. They would do some surplus baiting on the dime of the coffers of the temple in order to just have some food for their family. Says so the Talmud, the one compliment that can be extended to this family is that none of the children of this family were ever found with clean, refined bread of fine flour. The flour that was used for the showbreads was completely refined and just wonderfully high quality. And no one in this family, none of their kids were ever walking around with a bagel roll of refined flour. Why? To remove all doubt or to remove any suspicion that they were using the temple funds to feed their family. Now, just as an aside, there is a very interesting Maharsha comment to this story. You know, we're told in the, in the Talmud that this family was rebuked. They are forever placed in ignominy because they refuse to share their secrets. But they gave us their reason it seems like it's a legitimate reason. They don't want these secrets to be available to all to be used for harmful purposes. So why are they criticized? It seems to be quite legitimate a concern. You don't want the secrets of the temple to be in the hands of everyone because then who knows what they're going to use it for. So why criticize them for it? So the Masha says something really interesting. He says, you know, the argument may seem sound, but the truth is, it was an excuse. It wasn't real. The real reason why they were protective over their trade secrets, is because they wanted the monopoly. They wanted the monopoly and all the material benefits that the monopoly begot for them. That's the real reason. Everything else was an excuse. It was really the bias that they had and they just... Justified it by saying, oh, we don't want it to be in the hands of other people because maybe they'll use it for bad purposes. But truthfully, what was actually happening beneath the surface is a, a concern that their monopoly will be disrupted. To me, this, Marsha, is like a, like a Kabbalistic, not a Kabbalistic, a, a, a Musser idea. This is like the idea of Musser that you have to really understand what's actually happening beneath the surface. Someone could think that they're so righteous. But if you actually dissect what's actually behind their biases, what's really at the root of what, of why they're doing what they're doing, sometimes you find things that are actually quite, um, problematic. They're actually vestiges of bad character that's just being masked and masqueraded as good character. You know, just one more thing about the showbreads we just had in the Parsha. The episode of the blasphemer, chapter twenty-four of Leviticus, and right before that, you have the second instance where the showbreads are featured in the Torah. We're told about the showbreads in uh, in chapter twenty-four, parshas Emor, in the book of Leviticus, and right afterwards you have the episode of this blasphemer, this individual. His father was an Egyptian. Incidentally, the Egyptian that Moshe killed, and his mother was a Jewess, so he was a Jew, but he was a malcontent, and he blasphemed, and he was executed. So Rashi gives us three interpretations, you know, why the verse says that he departed. The verse says, Vayetze, he departed. What did he depart from? So one of the opinions is that he departed from the most recent part of the Torah, the, the the episode of the blasphemer comes immediately after the description of the of the uh, of the showbreads, and he was ridiculing the showbreads. He's saying, "Why are you having this old and rusty and moldy bread? Eight days old? It's not befitting. You have to have fresh bread." And that was what he departed from. Now she brings other opinions. He departed from the court because he was, given that his father was an Egyptian, he wasn't part of any of the tribes. And his mother was a Jewess, so he was halakhically a Jew. And his mother was from the tribe of Dan, Shalomis Basdivri, she was from the tribe of Dan, and he thought that he has the right to encamp in the tribe of Dan, and he came to pitch his tent in the tribe of Dan, and someone said to him, hey, hey, buddy, what are you doing here? You're not a Danite. You're not from our tribe. You have to leave. And he says, well, mom's from the tribe of Dan. He says, yeah, great, but where's your dad from? And the lineage of the tribal system goes through the dad. And your dad is not a Danite. He's an Egyptian. You have no place here. So they went to court, and Moshe, in fact, ruled that because the tribal system follows the father... And this guy's father was not from the tribe of Dan, therefore he is not entitled to pitch his tent in the tribal lands of the tribe of Dan. And he was so disappointed and so dejected that he just blasphemed in in anger and he was executed for that crime. Now incidentally, the verse proceeds by identifying this criminal's mother. She was Shalomis Bas Divri. Shalom is Bas Divri. And Rashi says that the word Shalom is from the word Shalom, which means hi or greetings. And Divri, the word Davar or Dibur, means to speak. So Rashi tells us, based upon the Midrash, that there was something wrong with this woman. She was very chatty. She loved to talk and to say hi to everyone. And she was a little flirtatious. And that's how she ended up with this Egyptian man she was she was a little bit overly friendly and even though she was married to a different a different person, she ended up doing uh something uh, or committing adultery of some for of some sort with this Egyptian man. why because she was overly flirtatious she was always chatting and saying hi to everyone That's the context in which this story is is framed but I was thinking you know we have the description of the showbreads. And we were told that one of the miracles of the showbreads, one of the miracles is that uh, it was always fresh. And Rashi tells us that the complaint of this individual or the, the, the reason why he was ridiculing and why it ends up in this part of the Torah is because he was complaining that the showbreads are so old, it's not befitting to God to give him Eight-day-old bread. How is that a legitimate criticism? Don't we know? that that We know that it was always fresh. That was one of the miracles. What is the, just on on the merits, the arguments of the blasphemer vis-a-vis the showbreads seem to be false. Why? Because, in fact, they are, they're not. They're not old and moldy and falling apart because that was one of the miracles. So it seems to me, perhaps we can suggest, this is my own idea, that the flaw, so to speak, of the blasphemer was that even if something is good, it has to be new. Yes, the showbreads were fresh still, but look at when they were baked. They were baked eight or nine days ago. It's not good anymore. And perhaps we can suggest that uh the flaw that he had really came from mom. You know, why was the mom being so flirtatious? Why was she, you know, she was a married woman. Why is she hanging out and frolicking with men that are not her husband? Maybe, maybe we can suggest that she had the same flaw. Yes, maybe things were good, but it wasn't new. And she was always looking for a new thrill. And maybe that's why she ended up in the place where she ended up. And that same flaw, perhaps, was perpetuated to her son. It's gotta always be new. It's gotta always be fresh. And even though it's good, it's good, so what? But it has to be brand, brand new. And such a pursuit of newness and of novelty, uh, actually caused the downfall of both mom and son. I don't know. That's my speculation. That's my suggestion. But because we just read it in the Torah, I figured and it's relevant, it's relevant to this mitzvah. It uh, is something that perhaps I could uh, suggest to y'all. You let me know if you agree with it. Of course, the email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. But this is mitzvah number 97 in the temple. All the vessels, of course, have their purpose. And the table, one of the things that were done with the table was we placed these 12 showbreads from Shabbos to Shabbos, afterwards they were eaten by the Kohen, and that is of 97, to place the showbreads with the levona, with the frankincense upon the table at all times.